1: Available at
0: PrimalBlueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now here's your host, Brad Kearns.
1: Welcome listeners, and we have a special new guest part of our branching out effort to go beyond the the primal paleo hardcore stuff and if you want that go back and listen to the first nine episodes where mark and i go on and on about the diet and exercise and the primal living but today we have new york times best-selling author ashley merriman how are you ashley
0: i'm great how are you
1: i'm very well thanks and i appreciate you joining us on the show and this is part of our uh effort to Uh, get you exposed to our audience because you're presenting at primal con next october uh, next september 23rd through 27th in oxnard
0: that's right uh yeah i have september on my calendar if you're moving into october i need to know (laughs) but i I will be there in september yeah
1: so right now we are going to uh find out what what you're all about and these incredible books you've written so if you um have been living under a rock and haven't heard of ashley She and her co-author Poe Bronson wrote these bestsellers, first one, Nurture Shock, New Thinking About Children, and the more recent one, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Um, But the first thing, before we get into the details of the books, I want to know what's what's life all about when you you write a you write this great book you work on it for for however long it's released it's on the market it's it's popular it's going to the bestseller and then then you've got to start working really hard right you're traveling around doing these talks
0: <laughs> uh, well i don't know if i would say one is really hard and the other is easy i i don't think any of it's really easy it's different i you know when i'm writing it could be 8 hours not talking to a single person and you know reading research and maybe I'll pick up the phone and talk to Poe or a researcher but it's a pretty internal and isolating experience and it's challenging you know and, and so there's intellectual excitement and artistic excitement in it, but you know, it's difficult and then once the book's out to go out and speak to people is demanding intellectually demanding but in a whole different way because now it's trying to you know see different things in terms of what people are interested in how to talk to someone about something you know in a podcast isn't the same way i would necessarily do it in prose and so it's just it's a different challenge but i like both of them and In fact, you know, as the more I talk about something, the more I sort of come up with new ideas on how to express something. And then I'm like, oh, man, if I'd known that three years ago, I would change the book. Um, But it's fun to do both.
1: Well, they seem to be quite disparate, too, because that internal focus and you're in your own head. And then all of a sudden you're interacting with a live audience and hopefully, you know, seeing how how the reaction is and and, uh, adjusting your presentation accordingly. So it's very much personal and social.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, in my mind, you know, I have a background in communications and screenwriting and speech writing. so I'm always really very mindful of, you know, who am I writing for and what am I doing, but especially when you're doing an event, um, knowing who a specific audience is makes me challenged um, to communicate in a different way than I would, you know, the, the person in my mind who I'm writing for. Um, or their different interests and I don't really have a canned stump speech
1: uh-huh.
0: um, I have pieces that I go oh well a lot of people like to hear about this or I think this is important and everyone should know this but you know a business you know a business audience may say we want you to spend an hour talking about teams and a uh, parenting edu- or educator office um, audience may say no no we want you to talk about the science of creativity or the science of motivation and um, and I'm great with all of that. That sounds fun to me.
1: Wow, that sounds sounds like good challenges to uh, prepare custom talks and actually sounds really professional because you see a lot of speakers where they have their, their stump speech. They don't care who the audience is. They don't really notice if they're getting bored or not, but they still drone on, you know, when it's it maybe a non-technical audience and they're just doing their canned thing. So... That sounds cool to, to make it dynamic, and um, we will uh, we'll challenge you to deliver a Primal Con appropriate talk in September.
0: <laughs> that, that is exactly what I want to do.
1: Um, so, Nurture Shock was published what year? Uh,
0: 2009 in hardcover, and I think it was 2011 in paperback.
1: Right, and one of the sound bites is um, uh, parents have mistaken good intentions for good ideas. Mm -hmm, And the the insight that really blew me away um, was this concept of the inverse power of praise, which was also the uh, top title of the New York Times Magazine article that was widespread distribution. Um, Tell us a little bit about that.
0: It was New York Magazine. We wrote a New York Times piece for Top Dog, but it was New York for praise. Um, Yeah, well, you know, I believed that you were supposed to especially for kids boost their self-esteem and tell them they're wonderful and they're smart and they're special and really believe that wholeheartedly and um doing research about a sort of related topic about adults led me to the work of carol dweck who studies the effects of praise on kids and she actually found that constantly praising kids and telling them they're, you're wonderful doesn't actually cause them to achieve more, which was the idea, um, it actually backfires because, because kids become really invested in being told they're smart and they don't wanna do anything to prove you wrong. So they would rather underachieve, they would rather cheat and say, well, I could have done it if I wanted to, I just didn't care. They'd rather, so they'd rather cheat or not try then do something and be told, "Oh, sorry, we I guess you're not that smart after all." So all of this praise is actually causing kids to underachieve and their self-esteem is to be more fragile when I think the original intent had been that we were going to boost kids' self-esteem and therefore make them fearless. So that's why it's the inverse power because it actually backfires and does the opposite of what we thought it would do.
1: And there's some other dimensions here too. So if, uh, so if you tell a um uh, a, a, a young female, you're very pretty, um, that could lead to some complications with the development of her personality, I imagine?
0: Yeah, you know, I've actually, I've asked researchers a million times, please study you're pretty. And no one has specifically done it. Um, there are media studies that have looked at sort of a message of pretty is important, and that those definitely have effects on kids, um, girls, girls self-esteem what do they you know spend time doing are they worried about gaining weight the only reason i and and the uber tip for praise that i learned is basically well my uber uber tip is be honest Uh, you can be warm and supportive and that may mean praise or criticism as long as you're warm and supportive it's fine and the other thing to my other sort of alt praise uber tip is to praise what someone does and not who they are because you can always change what you do you can't change who you are so the sort of easy top line and I think people have actually overdone it now uh, but rather than saying oh honey you're so smart to say oh honey you worked so hard because next time they can choose to work hard on something or not they can't choose to be smart or not. And pretty relates i think to that because that's definitely something that's about praising who you are right um my one hesitation in saying don't ever do that is there is such a high value on appearance in our society Uh that if a parent never said oh you're pretty i kind of wonder if that would have be interpreted by the kid as an implicit you're not pretty And that's the one thing I am worried about, and I've asked the researchers, please look into this, and they're worried about it too. So (laughs) it doesn't just seem like we can do some knee-jerk, stop saying you're smart, stop saying you're pretty, stop saying you're talented, because we don't want... You know, nature abhors a vacuum, and we don't want the kids to say, "Well, they never thought of anything, so I must just suck." <laughs> and I don't want any kid to walk away from this saying, "So the answer is just I inherently suck."
1: <laughs> well, I remember one passage from that article in Verse Power of Praise where you know, we'll go to the example of you're you're a great athlete, you're so mm-hmm. talented, and there you're going to possibly mess the kid up where they, they don't make mm-hmm. maximum effort because they, they just rest on their laurels of mm-hmm. natural ability. Right. Um, but one well, other thing that was mentioned was, you know, it's pretty easy for the kid himself to find out that he's a great athlete in third grade on the playground when he's beating everyone in the race and hitting the ball over the fence.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the problem with things like you're a natural athlete or you're smart is... Over time, kids actually start learning that effort is stigmatized. Effort is that thing that the kids who aren't a natural athlete have to put out. Oh, effort is, oh, I didn't have, you know, I just do my math in the car because I just get it. It's that other kid who's struggling who actually has to do his homework. So, and all of that actually works until kids experience experience difficulty. Uh Uh-huh but they haven't gotten a strategy to overcome difficulty because they were just always relying on their natural gifts to succeed. So that's what Carol Dweck really found, was in moments when kids were experiencing that struggle and that difficulty, that's when they lost that sense of who they were that we had manipulated,
1: right? (laughs) And,
0: And that they couldn't overcome it. Right. And so things like, you know, you worked hard or you practiced whether you were, you know, pitching a baseball or in soccer or whatever that you practiced really hard or, you know, shows them again it's that thing I can pick and I can choose to do it or not and then it makes a difference. And so where in the 70s the researchers would have said it's all about building self-esteem and the idea was if that you build self-esteem, you can build achievement. Well, it's a one-way street and achievement builds self esteem but self esteem builds self esteem and ultimately you could if you're you know really good at self esteem you can lead to narcissism but you're not leading to more achievement so the researchers have said what's really best is focusing on skill building because uh, we instead of instead of what and ins- well instead of saying you're innately great uh-huh yeah teach you something yeah you know it, it it's sort of i guess a New psychological version of the adage of give a man a fish or teach him how to fish. Um, when you teach him how to fish, they go, Hey, I can do that. And that's very empowering. I mean, if you think about a little kid who just learned how to tie their shoes, right? And they are just so proud and you forget that they've tied their shoes. So the next time their shoes untied, you go in to tie their shoes. And what's the response? I can do it. Exactly. I can do it. And they're mad at you. Now, they may have forgotten and you may be standing there for 20 minutes as they try and figure it out. But the idea that I can do it, that is just the best ever. So giving kids specific skills that they can say, I own that. That's mine. I can do it is very empowering. And if you're focusing on skills, then you can also break the skill up into smaller things so that they feel like they're making progress. So even in the kid who can't tie their shoes by themselves yet, maybe they can make the bunny ear part. So if they get frustrated. So, but you did the bunny ear part. So you're helping me. And tomorrow you get that way even easier, and we can do the next part. So it's a focus on progress and a sense of ownership of their abilities, rather than just being told you're natural at this. You know, uh, I mean, I yeah. come to hate the term gifted
1: <laughs>
0: because. And I'm not saying there isn't a brilliant kid out there who's just preternaturally gifted. I'm just saying, let's think about the effect of telling them that all the time. And it's literally your success came as a present,
1: <laughs> whether
0: it was under the Christmas tree, or from your parents, or from God, or from the universe, or dumb luck and Darwinian evolution. I don't care what perspective you give, but every one of those explanations means your success has nothing to do with what you do. And that, to me, is a damaging thing to tell kids.
1: <laughs> well, I, like and you mentioned... I'd right? yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, be um, pretty
0: dispirited if you told me that my efforts <laughs> can't, were really irrelevant.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it sounds like the you get into problems when the level of competition rises, and so that, that gifted, talented mindset once you get your butt kicked in a competitive setting where you, you've been, you know, nothing but successful, mm-hmm. uh, that's when everything sort of crumbles. Right. There's too well, much invested in the, you know, like you said, there's too much invested in that character trait.
0: Yeah, I mean, the research has found that especially if we're still talking about kids, although I, a lot of this I think, this does apply to grown-ups, um, we it wrote in Top Dog how the sort of second-tier best- Boys underperform in a competitive school because they often were overconfident and they expected when they started school that they would be the valedictorian. And the idea that no matter what they do, they're still number two it causes them to underperform. They just get frustrated and give up. You know, for everyone, one of, you know, we learned a couple big ideas about competition, but the first thing is you have to, it has to be a close race. You have to have a feeling that you're going to succeed. We don't have to have a promise of success, but this, you've got a meaningful shot. And, if you know, again, if you're invested in, I'm going to win in everything, and then you don't, where do you go from there?
1: Yeah, you go to the doghouse. So that was a great transition because I want to get into Top Dog. And it sounds like they, it was related, like you started mm-hmm. thinking about a new book after uh, settling on Nurture Shock.
0: Um, well, we, you know, after Nurture Shock, you know, people, you know, people asked us, we asked us what what next. And we really just looked at the research that was, I I guess two things were going on at once. One was we were looking at the research and what were the things that made us excited. Intellectually, the things that we said, what? Um, My favorite example of that was at, as we were out talking about Nurture Shock, I re- um, we read a study by Steve Garcia and Ava Shalom Tor on SAT scores and that the more students who take the SAT at the same place at the same time, the lower everyone's scores. <laughs> and I went, what? And if you are already podcast people out there going, what? I'll say it again. Why? Four kids taking the SAT at the same place at the same time, everyone's scores go down. And so I'll explain in a second. But, you know, I, I wanted to know the answer to that. And there were a few other studies. And I just sort of, on a macro level, went, this is all about competition. And I think that actually fit pretty nicely with the conversations we would had relating to praise because, you know, so much of praise are really false trophies. They may be verbal trophies. They may be actual meaningless trophies that are handed out to people. Um, we can talk about my profound hatred of everybody. It's a trophy program if you like, but you know, that we are manipulating kids into success. And if that was the question, then in some ways top dog kind of answers the, well, when do you compete? When should you lose? When should you win? And what are the circumstances that are going to help you or hurt you in those moments of pressure. So it's not even necessarily just limited to formal competitions, but how you do perform under pressure. So that's sort of how we ended up with Top Dog. So you want me to explain the SAT riddle? It's pretty crazy. Yes. Um, well, research has found that, oh, in all of this, they looked at you know, federal funding for states, how many how many parents in an area had college degrees, how many students were taking the SAT versus the ACT. So they were statistically controlling for all of those things, but no matter what they did, it was still the case that the fewer students in a room were getting the better scores. And they've also actually done this in lab experiments. So they'll bring someone in and say, okay, here's 20 question trivia quiz, and there's a hundred bucks um, you're competing in against nine other people, the fastest time and the correct answers gets the prize. And another guy will come in, of course there's no other nine people, right? And another guy will come in, uh, you're competing against 99 other people, fastest prize, fastest time gets the prize. People who are competing against 99 go slower, even though they know the answers, than the people who think they're only competing against nine. So... What Steve explained to me is that competition is personal, and it's about understanding that I know I did really well on studying for the vocabulary part of the SAT, but you may kick my butt on math, so I'm either going to really have to pay attention to my math or I can't miss any vocabulary. And I look around the room and I say, okay, he might do really well on that section. And she's studied really well on this. And she's my peer in vocabulary or whatever the situation. But each one of those individual references to people I know help me understand my own strengths and weaknesses. It's not about beating them. It's not about taking them out. It's about using them as reference points. And that's what great competition is about using other people to inspire you to do the best you possibly can. And in the SAT context, well, you know, I don't, there's that cliche about, you know, getting lost in the crowd. And I always thought of that from the perspective of the person trying to find me, right? You just can't find me because I'm somewhere and there's just too many people wave to me, tell me that you're in, you know, the red shirt or whatever so I can find you. But the competitive research says to think of it from the person who's stuck in the crowd and that you actually lose yourself in the crowd because those helpful reference points, who did better in math, who did better vocabulary, disappear. And because you don't have those reference points anymore, we all collectively take our feet off the gas.
1: So it's overwhelming to walk into the big room versus the small room. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me of th- the cool thing about Top Dog. There's just so many one-off insights that, y- that stick with you that are just mind-blowing. And this uh, discussion of the SAT reminds me of the grouping of the students at the Air Force Academy. Can you talk about that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, researchers who had been studying a little backstory... Not in Top Dog, but that's the fun of having me on a podcast or in a speech. I always say extra things in my head that aren't anywhere. <laughs> um, so researchers had studied dorm, dorm mates, basically, at Dartmouth and other Ivy League colleges. And they found that it was sort of a rising dorm lifts all dorm mates, if that makes sense. Right. Makes sense metaphors. And that a superstar achieving academic student would cause their, their roommates' GPA to rise. And they said, well, hmm, so what if we pick whose roommates you get? And we manipulate it so that underachieving students are in rooms with overachieving students, won't that raise everyone's grades? And they actually tried this as an experiment at the Air Force Academy to um, help stem a sort of perpetual problem with the dropouts because the Air Force Academy is really hard. Now, first, before you under- go, I want to go further, you've got to remember, the first study was at Dartmouth and the next study is at the Air Force Academy. None of these people are underachievers, right? They're all engineers. They're all going to the Ivy League. These are not kids who are struggling in college per se. They're just not necessarily as incredibly rock star as the guy in their room, if that makes sense. Um, But what the Air Force found was while the Dartmouth natural roommate selection, it just willy-nilly happened, orchestrating the room so that you forced the underachiever, quote unquote, the Air Force Academy version of an underachiever, to um, be with someone who was the next valedictorian actually backfired because it became this sort of constant reminder, like we were talking before about the close race, you're behind, you're behind. And rather than having that student feel like they should you know, study more and then it would make a difference, they ended up actually self-segregating so that the students who were struggling became their own little clique where it was safe to struggle and even safe to accept the failure. So the high students were sort of immune, The lower students were kind of just depressed and ignoring everything. Um, But the middle students actually did better because they all sort of saw each other, remember? Small room, I can take these people. Everybody was pretty much closely grouped in that middle GPA level. And they all said, oh, well, if I study a little more, I can do that better than that guy, or I can do better than that guy. Ooh, that guy's gonna get me. I better go, you know, back to the library. So the middle performers actually did better, but it didn't help the people who they had intended on helping.
1: So all the middle performers all did better collectively. Right. Yeah, and, and so it was the opposite of the intended effect.
0: Well, I don't think anyone really thought about the middle performers because they were really right, focused yeah. on the fact that they were trying to, I mean... There's the,
1: nobody left a room with, so let's just throw the middles in.
0: <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, the concern was about the students who were struggling. And they, the, the guys who were in the middle weren't struggling. <laughs> just they were, they were just there, and they were probably going to graduate, and they were going to do fine. So people were just less worried about them.
1: Well, listeners, I decided to divide my conversation with Ashley into two separate shows because the commentary is so compelling and at times moving very quickly to a new insight. So, I think at this point in the interview, it's important to reflect upon the message and how you can apply these principles into all areas of your daily life. So, we'll pick up part two in the next show. Uh, In this show, we spent much of the time talking about the book Nurture Shock and parenting parent-oriented research and principles, but these principles are universal to anyone who wishes to communicate with others in a supportive manner, to build authentic self-esteem instead of getting caught up in the traps of being attached to the outcome and to external recognition." The article mentioned at the outset of the show, The Inverse Power of Praise, that was published in New York Magazine uh, seven years ago now, is really worth reading for anyone and we'll have the internet link in the show notes or you can just Google The Inverse Power of Praise. When I read this article seven years ago, I've literally thought about the principles mentioned every single day of my life and dramatically reformed my approach to parenting. Um, As the quote goes that Ashley mentioned, we often mistake good intentions. intentions for good ideas and it's simply not good enough anymore to proceed with good intentions, let's say as a parent or perhaps as a leader in the workplace, when we have the tools available and the knowledge available to improve our communication with others. Well, I hope you enjoyed this Part 1 with Ashley Merriman, and in Part 2, we'll discuss some topics related to competition that were detailed in her book, Top Dog. Again, just as traditional parenting principles have been turned on their ear, many of your familiar notions about competition will be reframed after hearing some of these insights from Ashley and hopefully grabbing the book too. Some of the studies mentioned, and we'll get into them briefly, will just blow you away. You'll never forget some of these insights. So thank you very much for listening and check in at the next Primal Blueprint podcast for part two discussion with Ashley Merriman, co-author of Nurture Shock and Top Dog and presenter at the 2015 Primal Con next September 23rd through 27th in Oxnard, California. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Until next time.
0: Safeguard your health with the most comprehensive all-in-one nutritional supplement on the planet. Primal Nutrition's Damage Control Master Formula. Forget mixing and matching with multiple bottles of individual agents. Now you can just take a single packet of the most potent and optimally balanced multivitamin, multimineral, antioxidant formula available on the market. You'll enjoy complete immune system, cardiovascular, memory, nerve, bone, liver, and anti-stress support. Much more with 51 research-proven ingredients. Damage Control Master Formula helps you combat oxidative damage in every cell and every system in your body, and shore up any dietary shortcomings with complete protection. Order Damage Control Master Formula today at PrimalBlueprint.com,
1: and check out the incredible free shipping offer for our convenient and custom-designed auto ship program.